Howdy, folks, and thanks for tuning in to this episode of Rediscover the Winds, a Wyoming history podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kirsten Michael. And I'm Zach Larson. We both work for the Fremont County Museum System, located in the heart of West Central Wyoming, where winding roads lead people to little towns tucked into the mountains or sprawled across sagebrush deserts. As always, this episode is brought to you by Mick Pryor, a financial advisor with Edward Jones. Whether you're planning for retirement, saving for college, for children, or for grandchildren, or just trying to protect the financial future of the ones you care for the most, work with Mick to develop specific strategies to help you achieve your goals. He can also help monitor your progress to make sure you stay on track and determine if any adjustments need to be made. Last month, we brought our listeners into the backcountry of Fremont County as we shared stories of some of the historical treks museum staff guided visitors on over the last few years. From Bombers Basin to Gas Hills and Miner's Delight, we took folks on a digital tour of Wind River Country. In this month's episode, we are taking a look at the history of medical treatment, doctors, hospitals, and home remedies in Fremont County. And we know that this topic seems to hit closer to home than usual. We actually scheduled out this year's episode topics clear back in January, and we couldn't have foreseen how relevant the history of medicine in Fremont County was going to become. The world is struggling to cope with and recover from the coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic. And Fremont County has definitely felt the weight of coronavirus. We want to take an opportunity to thank healthcare workers, emergency responders, supply chain team members, grocery store clerks, restaurant staff, county officials, and, you know, everyone else who's had uh, a lot of work and a lot of responsibility for dealing with uh, this kind of pandemic we never really foresaw coming, for sure. Uh, And so we want to thank you for everything that you've done over the last few months to make this chaotic time a little more bearable. Well, as it is in the medical profession, the medical profession has never been a straightforward one in the Wind River Valley and Basin region. Not at all. Although the Native Americans who occupied the Wind River Valley and Basin were the epitome of innovative when it came to treatments. Not only did they adapt to living at different altitudes throughout the year, but they also used extensive plant knowledge to treat various illnesses or problems. One of the reasons the mountain Shoshone managed to survive and even thrive in the rugged mountains was their plant knowledge. They knew what they could eat and what could be used for treating illnesses. And people can find many of these plants uh, the Mountain Shoshone prescribed around the region still today. And some modern people opt to use home remedies, plant remedies, in lieu of other more over-the-counter medicines. Yarrow, which is normally considered a backyard weed, is used to treat small wounds like insect stings and scrapes, while arnica is used as a trap as a topical ointment for muscle pains and joint aches. And I can swear by the effectiveness of Arnica as a joint pain reliever because I keep a jar of Arnica salve on hand and often use it after a hike because there is nothing quite like the relief I feel after putting Arnica salve on my aching knee. And yes, I realize how old that makes me sound. Pretty uh, old. Anyway, as uh, white settlers moved to the West, they contended with their fair share of breaks, bruises, and illnesses. There's a reason that the game Oregon Trail often ended with people dying of dysentery, broken bones, or snake bites. The fur-trapping mountain men received assistance from the same plants that natives used, as well as a few more modern remedies, like mixed balms made of herbs and... Uh, questionable chemicals sometimes. Like mercury? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Handmade lancets, bottles of... How do you say that? Landonum? Laudanum. Laudanum. Or, <laughs> or iodof- go for iodoform. It. Iodoform. Yeah. What well, is that? So it's 
early medicine's favorite antiseptic, to put simply. Um, it was a chemical compound used to treat wounds, sores, and, and root canals, of all things. Hmm. Um, you name the ailment an iodoform, which, again, I've only ever read the word. I've never actually had to say it out loud, which is ironic for a podcast. Um, yeah. But iodoform was probably used to treat many ailments that you and I would probably just treat with antibiotic ointment at this point. <laughs> so the miracle cure of the of the olden times. Um, did it work? Eh, miracle cure is probably stretching the truth a little bit. I mean, it, it must have worked well enough because it was used well into the 20th century as an antiseptic. Although maybe it was just a placebo effect because the Dubois Museum has records of the very unfortunate account of when Andy Mansu, the first permanent white settler in the Upper Wind River Valley got hurt, got treated with iodoform, and still ended up with blood poisoning, aka sepsis. Well, did he die? I, well, technically we all die eventually, but no, at that moment, from that injury, Andy did not die. Uh, he lost some body parts, though, um, but it was not the first, nor second, or even third time he drowned um, that he got even close to dying, as he was with the blood poisoning. Um, yeah, Andy Mansu was, I read his, like, recollection, his uh, oral histories that he's left behind, and I'm just kind of like, how did this guy lived to be so old because he had like three drowning events and multiple horse related injuries uh, in an interview with esther mockler andy spoke about his worst injuries which happened when he fell off a horse and landed on his head and he here's a quote he said dr lanigan from fort washkey couldn't do anything for me my left arm was paralyzed and i had hurt my spine and lost my equilibrium but i got over it <laughs> but i, I got over it that's a that's a cowboy way of looking at things. Yeah, reminds me of the scene in Monty Python in the Search for the Holy Grail when the villager accuses a woman of turning him into a newt. When questioned about being a newt, the guy's like, "But I got better." Well, like that guy mixed with the knight that gets like four of his limbs chopped off and claims it to be a flesh wound. It's just wound a flesh wound. Come back, you coward. <laughs> yeah, that's that's that guy. They probably got inspiration from oh, Andy Mansu's life. That seems about right. Um, well, anyway, as an army station, Fort Washakie had a small military hospital and medical staff on hand. Uh, many civilians like Andy Manso visited the post for doc uh, the post doctor for care. Andy actually remembers in, in our records at the Dubois Museum. Andy remembers receiving treatment from three specific doctors from Fort Washakie: Doctor Godfrey, Doctor Lanigan, and Doctor Francis Welty. And Doctor Welty would eventually move to Dubois and work as the town's first resident doctor until his death in 1919. And Doctor Welty kept a medical journal that recorded his works and reading parts of this journal it's it's kind of insane one of the things he recorded in it um talking about what he dealt with as a doctor included overseeing the 36 hours of labor and birth of gordon shippen's son in may 20 on may 23rd in 1917 and he charged 35 dollars for that and then he also performed surgery on one poor ed allison's eye on june 1st 1919 for nine dollars wow after Fort Washakie shut down in 1909, a patient needing a hospital had to go to Cheyenne or Denver somehow. Town leaders realized the need for a real hospital for the growing population of the town. Episcopal minister Reverend John Roberts, who had a hand in many improvements to Fremont County, helped lead the charge to create a facility. The Episcopal Bishop of Wyoming, N.S. Thomas, wanted to build a hospital somewhere in Wyoming. There was strong competition from many towns in Wyoming for the facility. But at the urging of Reverend Roberts and the donation of land on Capitol Hill by the local church, 
the bishop chose lander. Construction began in 1911 using huge blocks of native stone. In 1912, the hospital opened with 20 beds. It was named the Bishop Randall Hospital for Maxwell Randall, a missionary with the Episcopal Church in Wyoming, who died in Colorado in 1873. Uh, by 1912, the little hospital stood on Capitol Hill. Uh, the road from the valley up the bluffs of the hospital was built, and it was considered a scenic drive into the country. A newspaper article from the Times said that Lander was the ideal place to, quote, stimulate those suffering from inactive and chronic complaints to get out and live close to nature and to have their health restored, unquote. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to read some modern uh, studies done on the effects nature has on our health. Um, tree bathing, anybody? Uh, mm-hmm. And other interesting therapies that people use nature for. But it's also really interesting to think about how people often came west for their health. Mm-hmm. I mean, who hasn't heard the story of a person coming west to escape the symptoms of consumption, a.k.a. tuberculosis. And, I mean, it was thought that the air was cleaner out west and you had room to breathe, which would help since tuberculosis was a disease that usually attacked the lungs. Well, and we've actually talked about a few cases of of that in past episodes. That's why um, Mrs. Walker moved out to the home on the range, which later became Jeffrey City, and that's mm-hmm. why a lot of people, you know, we talked about in our... When we were in Denver, we talked to several people about just the the benefits of being outside and in nature. So it's a recurring theme even on this podcast. I mean, when you live where we live, it's, I mean, nature is everywhere. And there's a reason why we decide to brave the ridiculous winters for the gorgeous springs and summers and falls. It's because there's something much deeper than just the pretty views. Mm -hmm. If you just look at Thermopolis or Saratoga and their hot springs, People came from all over to visit the mineral pools because they wanted the health benefits they offered. Thermopolis boasted health spas, hotels, sanitariums, and bathhouses around the hot springs all by the year 1900. So the Upper Wind River Valley has a few hot springs and thermal pools around itself, and some have long since gone dormant. But there is a reason why one of the main tributaries to the Wind River is called Warm Spring Creek. I've seen the bubbles that churn the creek's surface in spots, felt the warm water. It's a nice balmy like 76 degrees or something like that um tie hacks who worked around dubois would often bathe in the warm bath spots on the creek and even today people seek out the thermal pools and geysers to bathe in i can only assume that locals back in the 1800s and 1900s used these springs and thermal pools for health reasons too i mean very few men and even fewer women who lived in the dubois area during the late 1800s and early 1900s had medical training and reading some of those records we have at the Fremont County Museums makes me cringe. So if the option between some of those early medical treatments and a dip in the thermal pool, I'm going to take that. Yeah, I, I'm with you there. Um, hindsight and modern science tells us that there are better and safer treatments than you know, taking a dose of mercury, drinking rusty nail water, or slathering iodoform on a degloved finger. At the time, though, people did the best with what they had. Arguably, we still do. Yeah, and one person who did the best with what he had... Uh, available was a Dr. Emery Jewell. This takes us clear out to the hinterlands of Wind River Country. Uh, He was a graduate of the University of Minnesota, and then he moved to Lost Cabin in 1904 to practice medicine at the request of J.B. Oakey, the sheep tycoon whose mansion is is still out in Lost Cabin. Um, Shortly thereafter, he married. He actually found somebody in Lost Cabin to, to marry, and they moved to Shoshone, which at the time was a, you know, a new up and coming town. And he continued to practice medicine there in Shoshone and the surrounding areas. So I have an interesting story from his career. 
I mean, there's every town has a town doctor, but this story uh, comes from his early lost cabin days. And I guess while he was eating dinner one night, a stranger came in uninvited and sat next to him and said, how would you like to make a hundred bucks? Which basically translates into about 2,500 in today's money. Exactly how legitimate business transactions begin. Yeah, exactly. Somebody offers you a hundred bucks, do it. (laughs) That's right. Um, And he responded that he would. So he was told to meet the stranger at the edge of town at night on his horse. Sketchy. Again, totally normal. (laughs) Yeah. So at the edge of town, he was blindfolded and led to a little log cabin where a badly wounded man lay on a cot. This new doctor treated the injured stranger, gave instruction for his continued treatment, and was led back to town, again blindfolded, but $100 wealthier, and with a very stern warning not to reveal what he had been up to or where he had been that night. (laughs) Uh, Any idea who he treated? Uh, Some say that the injured person was a member of Butch Cassidy's Wild Bunch gang. Uh, but we don't even know if this story is 100% true or or anything like that. I was going to say, this doctor clearly did not keep his promise to not tell anybody what he was up to that night. That might have Otherwise, been we wouldn't be talking things. about it 100 years later. Yeah. Or maybe he saw in the news that oh. the guy went to jail. So he was like, all right, I can talk now. I don't know. All right. I've been holding this in for 80 years. <laughs> I mean, that's a story that you want to tell your grandchildren. That's right. Plus, that's a hundred bucks. Yeah. That's that's a good hour's worth of work right there. I think so. Um, yeah. And I guess he did. He did what he could with what he had. And another person who did the best she could with the supplies and knowledge she had was Annie McKenzie Williamson, who was a Dubois resident during the early 1900s all the way up to the mid uh 1900s. So Annie was one of the few women in the Upper Wind River Valley in the early 1900s who had professional medical training. And she came from Scotland where she had trained as a nurse and she came over to the United States where she married Dubois resident Dave Williamson in 1905-1906. We're not really sure about the dates, um, such as history's curse of being terrible sometimes. Uh, But the American West and its residents sorely needed Annie's medical knowledge. What are some cases in particular that she helped with? So living on the east side of town at the Upper Circle Ranch, neighbors often called on Annie to help with injuries and to deliver countless babies, both human and animal ones. She mended broken bones and monitored sick sick patients too. But I, I gotta say, the most impressive story of her medical endeavors included being called up to treat Laura Pease when Laura got shot. How did she get shot? Well, apparently, her husband, Henry Pease, was cleaning his gun and failed to check that it was unloaded. Well, we've all been there before. Mm, Have we? No. No, I have not. (laughs) I don't make a habit of accidentally shooting people. Well, this is good. I mean, it was, yeah, it was on accident, most likely. It's one of those stories where you're like, hmm, really? Really? (laughs) But the gun discharged either way, and the bullet went in near Laura's groin and like out the above the knee, which is a really strange trajectory if you really try to think about it. Yeah. Um, but Annie was called up to administer medical treatment and according to records, she dressed the wound and nursed Mrs. Pease back to health in less than three weeks. Wow. It's impressive to recover yeah. from a gunshot wound in three weeks. Um, but as many yeah. human or animal induced injuries people dealt with, there were still illnesses that caused the bacteria and viruses to contend with it. Take the Spanish influenza epidemic that hit the world during the last years of World War I. 
came in three waves. The first wave circulated in the fall and spring of 1917 and 18. seemed like a regular flu season without exceptional mortality. The second wave started in the fall of 1918, and the virus had mutated and become much more lethal and contagious. Dun, dun, dun. The second wave of the Spanish influenza was the deadliest wave, which reached its peak in the October of 1918. And Fremont County was struck by the flu beginning in October 1918, and it lasted until January 1919. Statewide, there was about 780 fatalities, so 169 came from flu alone, and 611 of those came from flu with complications with pneumonia. And the Wyoming Board of Health recorded about 26,725 cases of flu in 1918, which is, think about it, it was out of a total population of about 181,000. So about one in seven Wyomingites were infected by the Spanish influenza. By 1919, the total number of flu cases was reduced to 7,047. Even the smallest bit of common sense health and healing information could be the difference between life and death in the upper Wind River Valley and in the Wind River Basin. Yeah. And if this topic, the Spanish flu or the influenza outbreak of 1919, is something you're interested in, as we record this, I'm working on a kind of a long-form, in-depth dive video about that epidemic and that should be available on our youtube channel by the time you're hearing this so if you want to learn more about that uh hop on over to fremont county museums on youtube and give that a watch uh yeah i will plan to do that for sure but slips hunting accidents blindfolded midnight visits horseback riding fails run-ins with farm equipment measles chicken pox the flu i mean i could go on but people in fremont mm. county and around the world dealt with all dealt with all of these things not to mention lightning strikes bear attacks avalanches the occasional root canal esther mockler who lived in dubois titled her memoir 80 miles from a doctor because that was the reality that people dealt with in dec- for decades in dubois wyoming and many other rural parts of the country when someone asked how one copes with living 80 miles from a doctor esther responded you become innovative and you pray which is a lot more pleasant and optimistic sounding than when Helen Clayton, a resident of the Warm Springs, Wyoming, Tie and Timber, Tie Camp headquarters said, we were 100 miles from Riverton. We didn't go to the doctor. You either got well or died. Harsh. I love listening to that. She was interviewed for our Tie Hack, one of our Tie Hack DVDs. And I just, that quote always sticks out when I'm watching that movie during the summer when we have it going in our gift shop. And she's just like, "We, you either got well or you died. Like, yeah. that was the reality. That's a... Blunt, but true. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, I mean, back then, I guess you relied on your neighbors and your family more than anything when it came to needing medical attention or anything else. And we still do. Our neighbors and family members are the, they're the ones manning the ambulance shifts. They're the doctors and nurses and desk clerks and the hospital staff. They're search and rescue. It's still our family and friends that we rely on for help because of the good fortune that we have to live in these small communities. They just happen to have magnitudes of order better medical training and knowledge than their fellow medical professionals of 100 years ago. Got that right. And today, Dubois residents are no longer 80 miles from a doctor, but they are 80 miles from a hospital. Um, Still, Fremont County has more dedicated medical staff in its borders, as well as easier transportation options for medical emergencies than ever before in its history. So I'd say we've come a long way. Yeah, I think so. On that note, we are finished with recounting the medical history of Dubois, Riverton, Blander, Fremont County. Like we said, we could probably go on and on. Every family had a story of how Meemaw 
treated my scraped knee with some strange mixture or how grandpa used to steam opium and sit under a towel with it <laughs> that's that's that happened in wisconsin so at hmm. least it wasn't in wyoming um so we could go on but we figured that we would keep this trek or this episode a little shorter because last month's episode was about an hour long so we yeah. figured you we'd give you guys a break and uh with that thanks for joining us for this episode of rediscover the winds a wyoming history podcast and it is a really special episode with rediscover the winds a wyoming history podcast because we do have some news for our listeners so and that news is unfortunately i'm leaving the Fremont County Museum System. Well, that is unfortunate for all of us in the Fremont County Museum System, but do you care to announce why and where you're going? I guess that would be a good reason or a good <laughs> thing to do. I am leaving, um, not because I hate this place. I actually, this has been one of the best jobs I've ever had. It's been really rewarding and challenging. Um, I got married <laughs> uh, last October, and my husband lives in Cody, Wyoming. And oh, is as that... many of us know... Is that why we that? stopped calling you Kirsten Belial? I mean, that is one reason oh, why the puzzle we pieces are starting to fall Belisle. in place. Yes. So, we, my husband and I, made the decision that we were going to stop doing the long distance. I have been offered a new job up in Cody, where I will get to continue my museum professional uh, career up at the Buffalo Bill Center of the West. So, if any of you guys do get to go to Cody and not that I'm trying to take audience members away from the Fremont County Museum, but I'm going to be up at the Buffalo Bill Center of the West. So if you want to say hi, come look me up. That's where I'll be. Um, I do plan or I do hope to at least remain a guest host for Rediscover the Winds because this really has been a labor of love over the last year and so many months with Zach. It's been such a rewarding experience to do this podcast, to interview the people we've interviewed. And man, we have such big ideas and I super want to be a part of them still. Yeah. But yeah, at the, we'll the time of this recording the future brings us. Yep. We, we still don't know what's going to happen with um, our hosting. We're actually recording this clear back in April. So you're listening to it in June. That's, that's a while ago. And next month's may take a different format. It may take, be a pretty similar format. We'll just have to, uh, it'll be a surprise. Yeah. But even though I am leaving, um, we do have several more podcast episodes planned for you guys. Uh, uh, sorry, next month is peak rodeo season. Uh, so we're going to discuss Wyoming's amazing rodeo tradition and the rich wild history there. Uh, between the Cody Stampede, Lander Pioneer Days, and Cheyenne Frontier Days, we're bringing listeners across the entire cowboy state. So I may no longer be a guest host, or I might, you know, guest host next that month um but randy wise who has been a guest host on this episode or on this podcast will probably make an appearance and we're hoping that whoever the museums hire to replace me i know it's a hard thing to do um will also really be excited to get involved and rediscover the winds if you like what you've heard today uh, like us on facebook at rediscover the winds and subscribe to our channel on Stitcher, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you happen to be using. And if you've already followed us on those platforms, we really appreciate it. Your support means the world to us and uh, helps us continue to do what we're doing. So hopefully you'll get the chance to visit our museums or attend our museum events. And we know plans and events are being canceled and are rescheduled due to the ongoing health crises, but the Fremont County Museum System's 
our museums in our system are hopeful that summer will eventually come, and with it, it'll bring warmer weather, better health, and loads of opportunities to engage with history. Yeah, like I said, we're recording this in April, so um, as of now, these are the current events that we have, and we hope that these will continue to be scheduled, um, and they may things may have changed, and if that's the case, make sure you check out our social media and stuff for calendars. But anyway, um, on June, in Ju- on June 18th at 6.30 at the Riverton Museum, we are going to be doing kind of a workshop thing. And occasionally those of us that work in the museum and archives world get questions from people that have old family documents and books and things that they want to know how to take care of. So we're going to just do a kind of a quick workshop to teach some basic skills to uh, protect these precious family documents for generations to come. We'll talk about how to store them properly and what kind of conditions they do well in and, you know, talk about some no-nos as well. Um, we'll probably even do a little bit of basic conservation and repairs. So bring some of your documents and learn to take care of them with us. And uh, please let us know beforehand if you plan on attending so we can make sure that we've got the supplies that we need. So that same, actually on July 9th, so it's about a month later, the Dubois Museum is also hosting a Wyoming Community Bank series, and it is World War II POW camps across America across America. Man, I can't talk. Uh, So researcher and historian Kathy Kirkpatrick spent much of her life studying history and genealogy, and she's traveled all over the country studying the topic of World War II POW camps, the life of prisoners, and the life of townspeople next door to these camps. She actually stopped by the Dubois Museum during her research, and so we're really excited to have Kathy come and join museum staff so where visitors can discover the history of Camp Dubois, a World War II German prisoners of war camp located only a few miles west of town, as well as several other POW camps located around Wyoming, Montana, and other western states. And then the Pioneer Museum on in July of 2020, uh, historian and collector Dick Loper... We is don't know a t- date yet. No, that's a TBD. Uh, mm-hmm. Anyway... He's going to talk about the history of dolls around the world, and he's got an extensive collection, and he's going to bring some examples to highlight some of the things that that he's talking about. So if you're into dolls and stuff, that should be a really interesting talk. So, uh, and if you're not into dolls and stuff, I'd still go because I would love to learn some of like, why people collect dolls. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting talk for, for everybody. So make sure mm-hmm. that you put that on your calendar and... Hopefully, we'll know a date soon. Anyway, let's talk about our Wind River Visitors Council sponsored. And our awesome adventure treks. Yeah. So, the Pioneer Museum in Lander is leading a adventure trek on June 20th at 10 o'clock, and it's titled The Petroglyphs of Lander. So, join museum staff for a trip to seldom seen Native American petroglyphs around the Lander region. Uh, meet at the Pioneer Museum and be pe- pe- be prepared for a two-mile hike over uneven terrain. Cost is $10 a person. Box spots are limited, so call the Pioneer Museum to reserve your spot. And we talked about this on our last episode, but we do some amazing treks, and uh, it's definitely going to be getting into trek season here very soon. So, uh, the mm-hmm. Riverton Museum is hosting a Blackbridge Adventure Trek on June 20th, and that's going to run from about 9 in the morning till about noon And this is a biking trek. We're going to just meet at the Riverton Museum, and we're going to hop on our bikes north on the rails to trails. It's about six and a half miles to Blackbridge, 
And along the way, and when we get there, we'll talk about the history of the Chicago and Northwestern Railroad and the history of its bridges on both sides of Riverton. And then we'll, we'll bike back to town. Uh, make sure to bring water and a snack. And, uh, you know, we're going to end up biking 13 or 14 total miles. And it doesn't cost anything to join us, but, you know, just make sure that you're comfortable with, with that kind of a distance on a bicycle. And it wouldn't be a bad idea to bring a spare tube and a air pump or something just in case. So. Just in case. So the Dubois Museum is hosting our own uh, trek of town, and it is historic walking tour of Dubois, Wyoming, on June 30th at 7 o'clock at night. Uh, learn the history of Dubois's West Main Street on this historic walking tour led by Dubois Museum staff. This trek will start at the Dubois Museum and end in front of the Cowboy Cafe, where you, you can enjoy a piece of homemade pie or mosey on over to the equally as historic Rustic Pine Tavern for a chance to finish the night with some good old-fashioned square dancing. Cost is $10 a person. Spots are limited, so call the Dubois Museum to reserve your spot. And then a li- about a week later, the Dubois Museum has another trek we're doing, which is the annual Mystery Sheep Trap Trek on July 7th from 9 a.m. to about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And during this trek, participants will learn about the Mount Shoshone people who built and used these sheep traps, as well as why the traps worked and other key factors about bighorn sheep. With over eight historic sheep trap sites to choose from, the mystery location won't actually be known until a few weeks before the trek date. So steep climbs and gorgeous scenery guaranteed. And we're also working with the National Bighorn Sheep Center for some interpretation. So we are going to get a bunch of natural history as well as cultural history on this kind of a trek, which also costs $10 a person. Spots are limited, so call the Dubois Museum. All right. And then um, on July 11th, the Riverton Museum is hosting a trek to tour the Midvale Irrigation District. We talked a little bit about this again on our last episode, um, but we're going to check out the reservoirs, dams, and canals that are the culmination of the promises made when Riverton was founded and the reason largely responsible for the growth of Riverton in the 20s and 30s. So we'll be joined by staff from the Midvale Irrigation District, and they'll t- tell us all about the history of the project and its role in present-day Fremont County. We're meeting at 9 a.m. at the Riverton Museum, and the cost is $12 per person. So that leaves just our one other series of events we're doing this summer, which is the Bailey Tire and Auto Service and Pit Stop Travel Center-sponsored Children Exploration Programs. And so Riverton has the first one. All right, so we're going to do some pioneer cooking. We're going to put a modern twist on the cooking techniques of generations past, and we're going to see what we can do cooking over a fire. So we're going to take a whack at baking some bread in a Dutch oven. Bread isn't any good without butter, so we're going to churn our own freshly made butter. And then if we feel lucky, we'll uh, even try to bake some chocolate chip cookies in a Dutch oven. And this event costs 5 bucks a person, and advanced registration is required. And that's June 13th from 2 to 4. And on June 17th, the Dubois Museum is hosting our third Kids' Corner event called Reading the Land. Uh, Join Dubois Museum staff at 9 a.m. on June 17th, where kids and their guardians will get to play with the Dubois Museum's new augmented reality sandbox, uh, where they'll learn how mountains and valleys form. You guys will even get to build and take home a mountain of your own. Curious how you do that? Make sure you call the museum to reserve your spot to find out. It is $3 a child, um, and kids five and under must be accompanied by an adult. But there is no charge for adult guardians. 
And then the next week, our last Kids Corner at Dubois Museum is titled Kids Corner in Mountain Shoshone Shoes on June 24th at 9 a.m. Come learn uh, how the Mountain Shoshone lived. And people lived in the Upper Wind River Valley for hundreds of years, but how did they live? Kids will dive into games where they'll learn about the foods, shelter, and culture of the Mount Shoshone. And like I said before, uh, call the Dubois Museum to reserve your spot. It's $3 a kid. Kids five and under must be accompanied by an adult, but there is no charge for adult guardians. But on that note, thank you guys so much for listening to this Wyoming History Podcast. It has been a blast to be one of your hosts, and I look forward to joining Zach and whoever your new host is going to be as one of your guest hosts. But for now, I'm your host, Kirsten, from the Dubois Museum and Wind River Historical Center. And I'm Zach from the Riverton Museum. And we look forward to continuing this adventure to rediscover the winds with you next time. <laughs>